I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Spandrew Spice. Welcome to Deep Cuts, the podcast where we pick a topic and walk you through the ins, the outs, and the nitty gritty so you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic is... How a ragtag army of POW staged a revolution that saw the end of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the birth of Czechoslovakia, part two. Everyone knows the stories of World War I, World War II, the French Revolution, and all the other classic historic wars taught to generations of kids in their high school history classes. Fewer know the labyrinthian sequence of events that led to the formation of Czechoslovakia. It involves the fall of four empires, an underdog army of Czech and Slovak POWs banding together to trek 6,000 miles across the Siberian tundra, Indiana Jones-style adventure and intrigue, and the seizing, consolidating, and redistributing of power that is still having effects on the world stage to this day. Act 4, Crazy Train. A desire for a working relationship with the Entente was the reason Lenin agreed to Masaryk's demand that Russia let the Legion evacuate through the port of Vladivostok. The only problem was that Vladivostok was on the Sea of Japan, 6,000 miles away. Actually, there was another problem. The advancing German army had split the Legion into two groups, one east of Kiev, one west. The German army was trying to encircle the western section. Guys west of Kiev sometimes fled German soldiers only to run into Germans coming the other direction. To leave Ukraine alive, the Legion would need to take the railway hub of Bakhmak. They sent out two regiments to attack its German garrison, and morale was high. According to Sergeant Gustav Bekvar, We were to have the chance of action against our enemies, the Germans. For years, we had stagnated, idle and restless. Now, our chance had come, and against the people with whom we most wished to fight. The German force fled when the Legion was attacked, but a larger unit came for a counterattack. A force of Legionnaires held out so the rest could get away. The Legion stole 70 trains while under fire. A unit of Red Guards joined in the defense for a while, but most of them had no training and fled. The Legion took the opportunity to acquire their abandoned guns. As they lost ground, the rest of the Legion began to arrive by rail, with men jumping off the trains while firing their guns as they went to back up their comrades. The machine guns and light artillery the arriving Legion brought was a serious threat against a German army that hadn't faced trained soldiers since the Brusilov Offensive. The last Czechs and Slovaks left Bakhmak on March 14th, counting among their loot thousands of horses and four airplanes. A legionnaire who fought at the battle estimates they killed 2,000 Germans and had 600 of their own dead, wounded or missing in action. On their way into Russia proper, with only cold soup and bread for food, in cramped train cars with no heat. Paradoxically, discipline improved. In the words of legionary Joseph Kinkel, Everyone felt it was necessary to pull together if we wanted to get out of the bloody chaos. Slowly, the Legion formed a society on rails. The Czechoslovak daily resumed publishing, operating out of a train car turned into a print shop. Soldiers began to decorate their train cars with slogans and found objects. Some Legionnaires taught the others French in preparation for a return to battle on the Western Front. And here we have a photo of this, I want to say, Wes Anderson-esque traveling circus of soldiers living on a train. And basically, they all lived in these little train cars. They decorated their train cars with symbols from their culture, the symbols of the particular army or battalion that they were a part of, little unique touches that made them feel like home. And then there was a little train car. It was a printing press. Like they were operating a, a newspaper out of one of these cars that they would then distribute out not only to the soldiers, but also to like people in towns that they were drive that they were like riding by. Can you imagine? Can you imagine trying to set up a printing press? Because at this point in time, the way they would make printing presses is that they had letters, <clears throat> little block letters that they would put all in a row on these printing plates, put a piece of paper on and then roll the ink over it. Can you imagine being the guy who's like, you're in a train, it's bumpy, there's like, you're, there's hills, and you're like trying to line up like the letters and then the one falls on the floor and it's like, beep, 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 beep. you're like chasing these, these little block metal printing press letters all around the cabin car. Like that sounds like a nightmare. I feel like that's a, that's a level of like cosmic torture for your craft that you aspire to. 
Okay. Okay. First off, first off, I feel very seen. Thank you. Second, fuck you. Fuck <laughs> you. Okay. Fuck you. Get the fuck away from me. Like you, you're you, you're that guy who's doing that, who's producing that that paper in that train car. I relate to it. That's how I kind of feel sometimes. I, that's how I feel sometimes where I'm just kind of like, why am I doing this to myself? This is so needlessly complicated and no one else will think this is nearly as funny as me. And then I just keep going because I'm obsessive. Um, but yeah, I, I, this sounds like a nightmare. And also, like you're saying, uh, the, the exact level of cosmic torture that I aspire to. Yeah, the, the, the editor-in-chief of the, uh, what was it called? The, the Czechoslovak daily, Davre Baker. <laughs> yeah, Davre Baker. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and he uh, he made his um, he made his employees uh, write everything single spaced in 0.8 font so that it was just impossible to print because he was just like, I like the challenge. I'm here for the challenge. I've lived for this day. This I've been training for this my entire life. Somebody comes to him and he's like, I got an idea. What if we uh, what if we made a piece of propaganda, but we printed it in point seven font? Slow nod. I'm up to the challenge. <laughs> on a fucking train. Yeah, I I like the paintings on the side of this train though. They're really cool, and they um, like there's this one. I don't what what. How would you describe that shape? It looks like a cartoon piano with eyeballs with a giant saucer with a white square in the middle of it. It, yeah, it's just it's just like a bunch of geometric patterns that I don't know what that's made from. I don't know how they produce that, but yeah, it looks like it looks like a it looks like a anthropomorphized face where the mouth is piano keys, and then the eyes are like windows or something like that, and then it just has like a big orb on its head. I don't I don't know what that's supposed to be, but that's that's what it looks like from this old, you know, dirty photo. But I, but I love I, I love like I kind of love this. I mean, obviously, like they were these guys were just like fucking going through the they were going through hell like they were living in train cars and traveling across, you know, these frozen tundras trying to, you know, get to a certain place without being discovered and murdered by German by the you know German soldiers. But there's also just something so whimsical and quaint about this idea of like we all just live on this train and we decorate our train cars with our personalities. Like I said before, it's like it's like it's like some fucking Wes Anderson shit. I mean, look, man, they might have been in a war for their life and culture against massive empires, but at least they had a printing press to make their riot girl zines with. Exactly, exactly. But yeah, I, I'm sure that I would eat my words in two milliseconds if I actually had to live through and experience this. But like something about this is this is very alluring to me. The idea of like living on this communal train. <laughs> no, but that's the th that's the thing is like what I'm saying is totally wrong, and I would I'm an idiot. And if I ever actually had to do this, I would start crying. I would cry. I would be crying for my mom within like a second. But just looking at this, I'm just like I want to live on a communal train with a bunch of you know dudes just hanging out and like decorating stuff and just like you know, getting together in one of the train cars and singing traditional songs at night. And then like, you know, a guy comes out and whimsically hands out this newspaper that's pr that's printed on like three cars over. Something about that's just so romantic to me. I can, I can understand that. The, uh, you know, divorced from the context of the horrific suffering that spawned this. <laughs> but then you think about it for three seconds and it's like, oh no, that would be horrible and you'd be literally crying yourself to sleep every night and you'd be wearing the same underwear for seven months in a row like it would be horrible none of those things sounds different than my current life that's true i've seen your house that's true you basically do live in a fucking train car yeah a train car of my own design the train car weirdly enough has a eye patch it's strange yeah mm -hmm. it's just a giant eye patch meanwhile russia had held its first ever free election for a new head of state with 58% of the votes, the winner was the Socialist Revolutionary Party. It was a leftist party like the Bolsheviks, but its politics favored peasants rather than industrial workers. It benefited from Russia's huge rural population and from the Bolsheviks having lost the public's trust in the, quote, neither war nor peace fiasco. A Bolshevik leader named Moiset S. Yuritsky commented, Shall we convene the Constituent Assembly? Yes. Shall we disperse it? 
Perhaps. It depends on the circumstances. In January of 1918, when the elected parliament was supposed to convene for the first time, Lenin ordered guards to shout abuse at the members of the assembly. After several hours of this, he had them disperse the crowd and call in more troops to fire on pro-parliament protesters. So this was like this was like the first ever filibuster, except for at the end he just fucking shot everybody. I mean, frankly, watching C-SPAN footage of filibusters, I can understand why that would be the reaction. Yeah, just like s the sweet release of death. Yeah, yeah, you know, when, when you sit up there and watch fucking Mitch McConnell read the phone book for 40 minutes or whatever, yeah, it makes you want to reach for a firearm, I can understand. Yeah, I mean, Mitch McConnell's out here filibustering with fucking seizures now. Yeah, yeah, he, his version legally is actually accepted as his silence for him is legally a filibuster because it, they use a health loophole because in his head, he thinks he's talking. It's just not coming out. In reality, it's it's a genius political move. Yeah, that guy, man, he's operating on a whole nother level. 4D chess, man. A few days later, the Bolsheviks declared the creation of the Soviet Russian Republic. This is when the opposition to the Soviets began to crystallize. Pop culture mostly remembers this, quote, white army as supporters of the old Russian empire. But that's not the whole story. The Bolsheviks were supposed to be the party of the common people of Russia, but their base was strongest amongst ethnic Russians working industrial jobs in the major cities of Western Russia. Now that they had alienated all other political parties, their opposition came to include social revolutionaries, peasants, provisional government loyalists, social democrats, liberals, and Eastern Russia's numerous ethnic and religious minorities. The White Army, which called itself the Volunteer Army, was not well organized or equipped, but it was highly motivated. In addition to experienced officers from the Tsar's army, it also included a lot of soldiers with very personal reasons to fight. In the words of historian William Chamberlain, Many of the recruits came from families which had suffered very much at the hands of righteous mobs in the city or village and were filled with the burning spirits of vengeance. I mean, once again, I, I said something like this last episode, but that's just that's just a badass collection of words. Like you never you never hear people talking like that anymore. I also, I, I wonder how much of that is like the language barrier, you know, like I have no idea if it's just more formalized because of it's, you know, they're politically written speeches or, or words that are intended to arouse a patriotic response from people or if it's literally just like yeah the way the language is structured is more formal you know what i mean yeah it just it just translates sounding like that yeah 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 it just, just translates to be badass <laughs> like like they say like hey do you want to go to the uh do you want to go to the corner and, and get some uh convenience store hot dogs but it translates to we shall march into the fires of 7-Eleven and return victorious with hot dog. Yeah, the, the Russians are just like, yeah, I don't I don't get it. Like every time I say something like these Americans, they just like do the metal horns at me. They just do the little the little hand. They just they do this to me and they and they just start air guitaring. I don't get it. I don't know. I don't know what's happening. Some weird American custom. Through it all, the Legion rode on. Bolshevik groups operated independently of the Moscow Soviet that theoretically ran Russia, and they'd happily shake down legionnaires for supplies and openly reject Lenin's order to facilitate their exit. Bolshevik recruiters would also try to convince legionnaires to stay in Russia and fight the whites. By March, the legion was well on its way to Siberia, through the harsh and desolate Russian land. In a letter printed in the legion newspaper, a legionnaire wrote, Good God, how different is this country which our Slavophile hearts once dreamed of. In the soul of these people, we saw heaven and hell love without measure or bound, and the hatred and savagery of an animal devouring its own young. Meanwhile, the Bolsheviks were taking actions that would turn the Legion against them. German and Hungarian POWs were common in Russia, and the Red Guards happily recruited from their rank. A German POW named Edward Dwinger recounted this exchange translated from the Bolsheviks who took control of his camp. You understand Russian? Good. Write as follows. Whoever supports the white troops will be shot. Have you got that? Whoever gives information to the white troops will be shot. Have you got that? Whoever among the prisoners of war will enter our ranks at once becomes a Russian citizen and will be given pay and arms. Have you got that also? Like our soldiers, Commandant Pontichow, finished. This would become a problem for the Legion. See, most of the troops in POW camps were German or Hungarian. Historians peg the figures at 100,000 Hungarians and 90,000 Germans in the growing Red Army. Some wanted food and boots. Others had gotten into communism when they worked factory jobs outside the prison. A lot of them still hated Czechs and Slovaks, especially Czechs and Slovaks that used to fight for the Tsar. This freaked out the Legion. The Reds signed a treaty with Germany, and now their army was full of Germans. 
It didn't look good for independence. Many in the Entente wanted them to stay in Russia for some new fight against Germany. Trotsky wanted to use them to guard Russia's northern ports. Czechs on the side of the Bolsheviks wanted them to stay and help fight the Whites. The Legion had to kick out their last Russian officers because the Bolsheviks thought they were against the revolution. Local Soviets kept shaking them down for guns and ammo. They had roughly one rifle for every 10 soldiers. Their armies were drying up, and morale was low. Then it got worse. There's a small town called Chelyabinsk in the area where Western Russia meets Siberia. It has a railroad station. Legionnaires heading to Vladivostok stopped there in May of 1918. They were there at the same time as the group of POWs heading west on their way back to Austria-Hungary. One of the Hungarian prisoners threw a big piece of metal at the Legionnaire. It hit him in the head and left a serious wound. There were arguments and fights, and eventually the Legionnaires killed the prisoner. When the Red Commissioner of Chelyabinsk investigated the situation, the rest of the Hungarian unit admitted he had vowed to kill a Czech before they left Chelyabinsk. His name was Malik. It was a Czech name. Imperial assimilation efforts had paid off. The ruling Chelyabinsk Soviet was dominated by Hungarian defectors who were prejudiced against Czechs. The commission they set up to investigate the killing released the Hungarians after they had confessed the victim had attacked the legionnaires and arrested the Czechs they had brought to court on the pretense of meeting them as witnesses. After the legionnaires they sent into town didn't return, command was sent to Czech officers to get them back. They were arrested too. At this point, the Legion ran out of goodwill towards the Soviets. The government in Moscow had promised them safe passage out of Russia, but at every turn, they had been extorted, intimidated, and pushed to abandon their neutrality. Things were about to change. Officers distributed their remaining weapons among 3,000 soldiers and sent them to get the prisoners back. They were under strict orders not to shoot, but took the town by cutting telegraph lines, disarming sentries, and looting the Soviets' army. The Red Guards killed three legionnaires, but the leader of the Bolsheviks in Chelyabinsk, Commissar Sadlucky, reported no Bolshevik casualties. The legionnaires didn't enter the office of the Soviet Executive Committee and negotiated with Commissar Sadlucky for the release of the prisoners. The Legion assured Sadlucky that they would not attempt an insurrection against Soviet rules in Chelyabinsk or Russia, and agreed to return the guns they had stolen from Chelyabinsk, and in return, Sadlucky let them leave with the prisoners. Commissar Sadlucky sounds like a Hideo Kojima character. No shit. I was just gonna say, like that that if that's not a Bond villain, I don't know what is. Yeah, it's a, it's a Bond villain, or it's a it's a character in a Metal Gear Solid game, or or you know, or uh... Metal Gear Metal Gear Solid Nine, Metal Gear Solid Nine, uh, the whispers of depression. I would love if I mean number one, Konami hired. Hideo Kojima back or just relinquish the rights of MGS uh, t- to him, to Kojima Productions. But if Kojima made a, a Metal Gear Solid 6 that is just a recreation of this entire story in Hideo Kojima style. I mean, how amazing would it be if Snake was the one on the train trying to re- operate the printing press? <laughs> like that, that's like, that's the gimmick of it that of of that game because like every mgs game has kind of like a little gimmick to it there's like you know snake eater where you got to like you can like eat these animals and stuff like that and like it, it, if in this one it's like a stealth game on a train but then you spend like 90 percent of it just learning how to like print newspapers and that's like the whole game it just ends up being like a newspaper printing sim <laughs> every town you stop in like you have to have had x amount of zines already printed so that you can throw them from the train and like <laughs> pelt peasants with your uh, your propaganda for the first like four hours of the game you think it's going to be this like action stealth thriller about this like crazy war story and all this espionage and you start off like you know sneaking onto some trains and killing some guys and all this stuff but then four hours in they're like, you have to go deep undercover and start uh, printing this newspaper on this train. And then you start doing that. And then that's the whole rest of the 60 hours is just you like like us arranging letters and then like printing and then like smuggling the papers across like enemy lines and getting them in the hands of people and like successfully propagandizing. And that's your whole role in the, in the entire war. Spandrew. You can stop pitching. You've, I'm pre-ordering right now. Get back to us, uh, Kojima. We know you're listening. We know you listen to this podcast. The government in Moscow was pissed. They were already in a crisis situation due to famine, states seceding from Russia, riots, and an inability to control regional Soviets. This was the last thing they needed. 
So Leon Trotsky arrested the leaders of the Czechoslovak National Council in Moscow and forced them to order the Legion to disarm and join the Red Army. He didn't realize that the Legion being in control of Chelyabinsk meant they controlled the telegraph system. They were able to read all his orders as soon as he sent them out. This is just like a story from like a mountain goat song or like a, or like a Decemberist song. Like it, it's like the the level of like, once again, it's just, I said this last episode, but it's just, it's just unreal. Like the, this just seems like a movie. There's like, they, you know, he was sending out, uh, he was sending out counterintelligence, but we had control of the telegraph system. So we were able to intercept all of his messages. Like that's just, that, that sounds like a Bond movie or something. Like the, I'm surprised that something like this hasn't been done in some war movie, even just transposing it onto a different culture. Cause you know, America, we don't like to make movies about anything other than American wars. Um, but like, like you're talking about, you know, the the romantic guys on a train going behind enemy lines, decorating the train, operating a printing press out of the out of the train cars. Like that sounds like it could be like, you know, a quirky war movie or even a science fiction movie. Like you could take that and just drop it into a Star Wars framework or whatever and be like, oh, yeah, it's a fucking behind enemy lines. But with, you know a printing press or whatever. I'm not saying, I'm not advocating for that saying it sounds great. I'm just saying. But still Owen Wilson though. Yeah, yeah. Wow. 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 Darth Vader guy. Wow. It's a Star Wars movie? Yeah, wow. That Darth Vader guy, he's kind of not a cool guy. Wow. It's it it's taking this and transposing it into being like a multi-episode Star Wars space opera that takes place while Darth Vader is alive and then Owen Wilson is is Ma- Ma- Maserick. Wow. Wow, the Empire guys. Wow, the Empire Empire's not cool, man. Wow. <laughs> yes. Directed by Hideo Kojima. A billion dollars. I mean, honestly, could it be any worse than some of these fucking Star Wars movies they're making? Like, seriously, just let us fucking do it. What do you have to lose? The Legion was having none of it. Representatives from all parts of the Legion convened in Chelyabinsk to consider the situation and came to one conclusion. Despite the protests of the Legion's French military liaisons and their remaining Russian officers, they maintained that their goal was to free their homeland from imperial rule. The Legion was having none of it. Representatives from all parts of the Legion convened in Chelyabinsk to consider the situation and came to one conclusion. Despite the protests of the Legion's French military liaisons and their remaining Russian officers, they maintained that their goal was to free their homeland from imperial rule. They were not going to abandon that to fight in someone else's civil war. If the leaders of the National Council in Russia wanted to change that, they wouldn't take orders from them. They hoped the Soviets wouldn't try to stop them, but if they did, the Legion would fight. Shortly after they came to this decision, Trotsky passed new orders. Every armed Czechoslovak found on the railway is to be shot on the spot. Every troop train in which even one armed man is found shall be unloaded and its soldiers shall be interred in a war prisoner's camp. Local war commissioners must proceed at once to carry out this order. Every delay will be considered treason and will bring the offender severe punishment. And here we got Leon Trotsky. Dude looks like if James Urbaniak time traveled and uh, just decided to never sleep again. Yeah. Yeah, he looks like he looks like uh, he looks like uh, take Colonel Sanders and crank up the uh, the the action movie villain by 150 percent. Leon Trotsky looks like if you had a art school professor who only painted landscapes do mescaline and then tried to give him a job as an accountant. Yeah, I, I can't I cannot do that one. On June 4th of 1918, he ordered that any Czechoslovaks that had been forcibly disarmed should be put in concentration camps administered by the All-Russian Extraordinary Commission, the Soviet Secret Police. Meanwhile, the Legion was trying to link all of their divisions into a single line along the Trans-Siberian Railway. All across the railway, the Legionnaires commandeered trains from the Bolsheviks and spread out to provide support for units at stations far away from the main body of the Legion. The Legion was so under-equipped, some of the men had to fight with clubs and rocks, but they were actual soldiers fighting the basically untrained Red Army, and railway and telegraph workers could cooperate with them, which meant they had a constant stream of intelligence about Bolshevik orders and positions. Most of the time, they knew where Red Army units were going long before they got there. A typical battle between the Legion and the Red Army at this time happened at the town of Chulim on May 28th. 
Legionnaires going west under the command of Captain Rodalo Gaja learned that there was a Red Army detachment headed their way. There were 400 Legionnaires in Chillum, with 40 rifles total. The rest had improvised weapons. The Bolsheviks were arriving on a train armored with sandbags and mounted with machine guns. A group of Legionnaires destroyed the railway bridge and attempted to sneak behind the train and destroy the tracks, but Bolshevik rifle fire forced them to retreat. And in the face of a train immune to rifle fire, all 400 men fled to Novosibirsk, a few days away. Eventually, they got an order to hide in the tall grass around the railway. The Bolsheviks had rebuilt the railway bridge and the death train was coming for them. As it approached, they opened fire and the train's machine guns mowed them down. But the Legion had managed to acquire an artillery piece which crippled the armored train in two shots. They charged the battered train and captured 200 prisoners. So tell me this, Dave. Problematic personal lives aside, in a vacuum, who would you rather have direct the epic film of this story, of the greatest war story never told? Would you want to see this as a Christopher Nolan war epic? Would you want it to see it as like a quirky Wes Anderson like pseudo comedy um, that's more focused on like creating fictionalizing a couple of the soldiers and turning them into characters and focusing on their interpersonal lives. Or would you want it to see it as like a weird esoteric cerebral Shane Carruth film? Well, okay. Well first that's not fair. You know what I'm going to say to that. That's not fair. That's not fair. Yeah. It was a bit of, it it was a bit of a loaded question. Yeah. The whole time you were talking to me, I was like, I choose none of these. My answer would be David Lean. But I threw you for a loop at the end, though. Yeah, you did. You did. You fucked me up because I was like, "This is this is this is Doctor Zhivago or Lawrence of Arabia." Like this is this is a perfect David Lean movie. You know, Bridge Over the River Kwai. I'm not gonna lie. I kind of did. I kind of did that on purpose because I I know you don't like Christopher Nolan very much. So I was like, I'm gonna start saying some stuff that you that you don't like. And then you're going to have in your mind, you're, you're going to be like, oh, I know what the real answer is. And then I'm just going to fucking destroy whatever your answer is with this last one. Yeah, it's not fair. It's not fair. Because, yes, of all of these people, I would pick Shane Carruth. Yes. Which, is, which, is, which makes sense when you were like problematic personal life aside. Because I was like, what, what has Christopher Nolan done? He has a brother who tried to kill somebody? That's not his fault. <laughs> like, what has Wes Anderson done? Like, wear pretentious clothes? Like, I don't, I don't understand. Is there something I'm not getting here? I canceled him a long time ago for those American Express commercials. You're not into him? But he he rides a he rides a, a fucking jib. Isn't that fun? He's on a jib. It is fun, which is why I canceled him. I don't like having fun. I don't like being forced to have fun without my consent. Oh, non, CN, uh, non-consensual consenting fun? CNCF? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You secretly love not having fun while you're not consenting to having fun. Which is why he's... Which is why he's such a problematic figure, you know. But yeah, can you imagine that, bro? No one else is gonna give him money to to make that movie, but I I would like, I would I would like to do I would like to see that. I would I would also just Lawrence of Arabia Mick crossed with Snowpiercer. On, literally, like I know I know that he has personal problems and he's an alcoholic and he's done some very regrettable things. But literally, like, I just want to see, like, another Shane Carruth movie. Like, I kind of don't even care what it is. Like, he's, he's, he's my version of the, like, problematic fave, like, I'm, you know, apologist. How people are, like, Woody Allen apologists, you know, or Roman Polanski. And if Shane Carruth had done something that was as bad as those people, I don't know if I could be. But I just want to see a Frank, a fucking movie by him, man. Like, any, any, whatever he wants to do. I, I don't think he's going to make any more movies, frankly. Uh, but if anybody doesn't know what we're talking about, we did a whole series of episodes about this independent filmmaker named Shane Carruth who made a movie called Primer, another movie called Upstream Color, and then we did deep dives into two unproduced feature films that he had been working on each for each one for upwards of five to eight years or something, and they're fascinating. Go back in the feed; you can find it. Um, and I'm obsessed with Shane Carruth, and I really wish that. I hope that he can get his life together. I hope he seeks help. I hope that he is able to make amends for the people that he's hurt and make amends to the people that he's hurt. And um, I, I hope that at some point in the future we get more Shane Carruth movies, but it doesn't seem like that's going to happen. It's going to be this. It's going to be this project. Shane Carruth's Czechoslovak train happy time. Yeah, but go go check out the Shane Carruth series. It's pretty, it's, I'm pretty proud of that one. Um, mostly because it's like, it's kind of something we've never really 
done like that's that's a very unique episode in what we did with it because we basically it's not really like a it's not it's not a story or a progression of events in the same way that like Andrew WK is not that I was involved in either of these episodes I wasn't there but I'm just I'm just as a listener I, I I'm proud of those episodes um there is a progression there is a progression of Shane Cruz's life but it's more about like there's these like segments or almost movements of the series where it's like now we're going to basically walk through the entire story of like of upstream color and or you know or of primer and break down the plot and the meaning and the symbolism behind the story and the film the behind the scenes filmmaking aspects of it and how it was like literally shot and the mechanics of the filmmaking um and it's especially interesting when we get to the unproduced screenplays uh, when we kind of go through the entire story of a movie that's never been made. And then you get to talk about like ways that it could have been made and, you know, uh, things, interpretations of the script that, you know, any it is up to anybody's imagination because the movie never got made. It's, it's really fascinating. I think, I think it's one of our, it's one of the show's best episodes for that reason. Cause it's super unique. Yeah, I, I agree. I would also say that, you know, there was a lot of, research uh that was based on other people's work there's a really great series of videos by the youtuber disregarding henry uh who does lots of film critical uh essays and analysis and he had he's written extensively about most of the shane caruth episodes and a lot of the research was taken from his videos so if you uh, want more stuff specifically visuals go to youtube and watch disregarding henry's uh shane caruth videos because they're very good on the advance again the legionnaires push towards the city of omsk between them and their goal was a town called Tatarsk. The Red Army commander there telegraphed Omsk for more troops and quickly got back a promise for immediate help. Then he realized it had come from the Legion. A unit going east had already captured Omsk. Faced with the Legion on both sides, workers in Tatarsk declared their support for the Czechoslovak cause, and the leaders of the local Soviet fled. Anti-Bolshevik forces published their surrender while the Legion was still miles outside of Tatarsk. Listen, I'm not... When I say this, I'm not... I'm not saying that I'm pronouncing these names correctly, and I'm sure that anybody with any kind of familiar knowledge with these places and this, you know, language probably is very aware of that. But what I'm saying is, is that um, words in this particular area of the world, Russia, Czechoslovakia, Ukraine, Siberia, they, they're, they're doing a lot of they're doing a lot of gymnastics with their tongues to say these things. And I'm I'm getting I'm getting the hang of it. Not once again, not of pronouncing these things correctly, but just getting my tongue to do the things that needs to be done to kind of say these things right. I have no idea. I have no idea. Like every other name you say, I'm like choking back, just popping off with a that shit's a Star Wars name. <laughs> Yes, there was a there was a guy who, who was it just a second ago that I I actually had that exact thought. I was like, this doesn't even sound Russian. This sounds like a Star Wars character. It was like it was like Moiset. What, what the fuck? Yeah, it was like it was like Moiset something. And I was like, this is this is just a Star Wars character name. This is not a Russian person. The Legion needed ships if they were ever going to leave Russia. Unfortunately, the Entente had no idea what was going on. News traveled slowly in World War One, especially in a country torn to pieces by civil war. Despite Dr. Beignese's constant insistence that they would only fight in Western Europe, some of the Entente's leadership still wanted the Legion to reopen the Eastern Front in Russia. Beignese held firm. He wrote to Masaryk, We shall win only on European battlefields, especially in France. If we have 20,000 to 25,000 troops here, we shall achieve everything in politics we want. Meanwhile, the Soviets begged the Entente to get the Czechoslovak Legion to stand down. Efforts to get the Legion to the negotiating table had little effect on men who had been told by the people they were supposed to negotiate with that any of them found armed would be shot on the spot, and anyone unarmed would have to join the Red Army and most likely never see their homeland again. At this point, the Legion was divided into two sections, the main body in Western Siberia and the body in Russian Far East, based around the port city of Vladivostok. To link up, they'd have to capture the railway station at a city called Irkutsk. West of Irkutsk, Red forces were besieging two small Czechoslovak units at the towns of Marinsk and Nisnudinsk, and a larger group of legionnaires were coming in to support them. To flank the Reds, 1,000 legionnaires moved 17 miles on foot and by rowboat in a single night. 
At daybreak, they followed the sound of guns and attacked the Bolsheviks to the top of the mountain. Under machine gun fire from another armored train, most of the legionnaires had to hold back, but a few soldiers crawled down the mountainside to destroy the railroad track and trap the train. Before they could get close enough, the train retreated to the east, which allowed the legionnaires to surround the Red Forces attacking Marinsk, killing 200 and taking 600 prisoners. The majority of Bolsheviks fled, and here's, a, here's an armored train, which is like, this is like a fucking steampunk nightmare. Yeah, I love the architecture and the, like, structured ribbing designs on this train and the giant dome, like, cannons and machine guns popping out of it. Like, man, that shit is cool looking. Yeah, I mean, this this is crazy. I didn't, I didn't know this existed. I didn't know there was fucking train battles. I've never, I've never heard of a train battle. Yeah, I guess maybe they, like, were on the train tracks, like, firing into uh, local townships? Like, what do you... Yeah, this is crazy because you're just, you're on a track, literally. So it's like, you know, you know, dogfights in the air. You, you know, you have a lot of mobility. It's a lot of like aerobatics and flying around and like dodging people. And then like, you know, obviously like ground battle is just people shooting at each other and using their aim. Um, And then, you know, boat battles like naval battles, even those are kind of like, those are relatively limiting where I've thought like, man, like you're just like on the ocean and you can't really move that fast. You can't turn very quickly. So you're just like, you're just firing shit at each other as like you're both moving, you're both sitting ducks and you're just firing firing at each other. But at least you can kind of, like boats can eventually turn and like go in a different direction and spin around and things like that. But a train, you're just like you're you're just you're just going forward, and people know where you're going by definition because there's a fucking track in front of you that's like telegraphing where you're going. Yeah, these motherfuckers are just like firing at the train tracks, being like, "Why won't the train tracks explode?" Call me naive, naive, and maybe I don't know what I'm talking about, but couldn't you win a train war by just like putting a penny on a track, just like I fucking won, baby? <laughs> battle over also you, you you never done the you never done that penny flattening thing well yeah i'm i'm talking about the urban legend that if you put a penny on a train track you'll derail the track but yes i i actually have done that where you put it on and it just flattens it or in some cases it bends it depending on like the type of track the issue was that reports said the local Vladivostok Soviet was shipping Entente guns meant for the Legion to Red Forces outside the city. In another night raid, Legionnaires covertly disarmed Bolshevik guards and got into position on hills that overlooked the city. The next day, they gave the Vladivostok Soviet 30 minutes to surrender. 30 minutes came and went with no reply, so Legionnaires busted into the Soviet headquarters and took the place without firing a single shot. Unfortunately, another group got into a fight with Bolsheviks next to the city's railway station. After an exchange of gunfire, the legionnaires threw four grenades into the building the Bolsheviks were holed up in, setting it on fire. A few hours later, the Bolsheviks surrendered. British and Japanese troops were deployed to aid the legion, but sat the fight out. The legion held a funeral for the 60 Red Guards they killed, and allowed the five leading members of the Vladivostok Soviet to speak at it. The legionnaires buried their four dead to a much smaller crowd. On July 6th, the Entente declared Vladivostok under their protection and placed troops around it to keep it open for the Legion's evacuation. There were murmurs of the Entente using Vladivostok as the staging point to equip a new eastern front against the Germans, but Masaryk tried to dissuade them from this, arguing they would need at least one million troops to have any chance against the German army. The Entente's leadership didn't seem to grasp how far Vladivostok was from European Russia, or how terrified the Russians were of any Japanese military movement inside their territory. But Woodrow Wilson still sent out a memo to Allied ambassadors, where he argued for sending whatever troops and supplies the Russians would accept to aid their defense, without specifying which factions of Russians. Listen, is me, I'm back. I'm back in the flesh. I bet you thought, Oh my God, I'm back again. Brother, sisters, everybody sing. Bet you didn't think I would, you see me again, motherfuckers. It's your boy, Woodrow Wilson, the king daddy of the long breaths. People who, people who haven't, who've just joined this show are going to be so confused by what I'm saying right now. But it's me, Woodrow Wilson, your, your favorite happy drunk kind of anti-Semitic and racist president of the United States. And I'm here to say 
that uh, I support the Ru- the Russians in the ongoing battle for freedom. Which Russians specifically? I don't know. I, I, I'm just saying I support the Russians. Whichever one of those I'm talking about is up for interpretation. I, I honestly, I forget. I, their names are hard to pronounce. I'm going to be honest. But I support the Russians. Look, I'm, I just, I like Russia, <laughs> Russians. And I don't see color in terms of Russians. So I just like all the Russians. And I don't really worry about if they're for the Russians or not. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm fucking saying, right? I don't see color. So maybe that's a personal problem if you're just like, which which Russian are you talking about? Because to me, all, all people of all races and creeds, they're all just God's children. So if you want me to specify which Russians I'm supporting in this ongoing battle, maybe you're just a bigot. Hard stop to that one. <laughs> yep, our, 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 boy, our boy Woodrow Wilson, the king of the longbreds, is also the king of the fucking middle of the road sitting on the fence because he was like, yes, I support the Russians in this battle. And they were like, uh, Mr. Wilson, they're, they're both Russian. Both sides of this battle are Russian. He's like, oh, um, uh, uh, you're out. I, I, I picked the, I picked the Russian one. I picked the Russian one, sir. They're both Russian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm going for the Russian one. So that means you're choosing the. No, 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 no. Just the Russian one. Oh, so you want the check? No, the Russian one. So the Ru- No, it's just all of them. Just about Russians. Big Russian fan. I'm a Borshafile. Is that what they're called? Yeah, Borshafile. The western half of the legion took. Irkutsk on July 11th. See, you can't even, well, how you expect me to pronounce that? You want me to choose which Russian I'm going to be backing? I can't even fucking say their fucking names. Irkutsk. That sounds like, that sounds like a noise that I make as I'm stumbling out of the bar. And I, and I've had a little too much sauce and a little too many long breaths. Irkutsk. They had a surprising amount of support from the local populace despite having invaded their city because they seemed more capable of keeping the lights on and the city sheltered from the fighting than the Bolsheviks were. Citizens were disappointed when the Legion's leaders explained they were going to leave Irkutsk to fend for itself so they could flee Russia. And there's a little map here, and I just wanted to... I wanted to put into scale, like, the the mass... the, the, the sheer scope of this battle and this, like, crusade across Russia. Like... This is the this is the 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 path that this like fucking epic train battle slash espionage slash quirky um Wes Anderson, you know, guys living on a train and making newspapers together journey was. Like in the in the scope of you know, this this is Russia, this whole fucking country, and you can see around it just like the larger um continent of Asia and this whole thing from 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 end to end goes across this entire fucking country which by the way was bigger back then because it wasn't it wasn't you know the small the other countries like Ukraine hadn't broken off yet yeah but it's like you know Vlada, Vladivostok is on one end of the country on the other side of China and then the railway goes from China Mongolia and Kazakhstan all the way to the other side of Russia to Moscow. That shit is crazy. And that's like on fucking trains and foot. Imagine the imagine the amount of like foot calluses that that made. Oh yeah, their their whole they had like fucking platform shoes of calluses. Dude, fucking crazy. Imagine the fucking D&D games. Like the, the the fucking campaigns they were running on this on this trip, some epic shit. It was like twelve seasons. The Legion was under pressure to move quickly because they had heard rumors that fleeing Red Guards had left Irkutsk with a train full of dynamite. To get around Lake Baikal, a body of water with a surface larger than Belgium, the Trans-Siberian Railway made a detour through a network of tunnels and bridges, crossing the mountains on the southern tip of the lake. If the Reds could collapse even one tunnel, the Legionnaires would be trapped on the west side of Lake Baikal. The Bolsheviks had parked their bomb train in a little village called Port Baikal, nestled in the Angara Valley. The Legion sent out three units to intercept them. 
One set up south of the town, one prepared to attack from the cliffs overlooking the village, they captured Bolshevik armor trained behind them for support. The third hit out on a ridge of hills overlooking the town. Gustav Beckfar, now a lieutenant, gave an account of what happened next. We stared silently at the indescribable loveliness of the view. Men drew their breath quickly, but few broke the silence. Suddenly, there came a crashing explosion which seemed to shake the very hills. The sound came from the direction of the Bakal station. The air trembled and our ears rang, and the sound and its many echoes went crashing through the mountains like thunder, gradually fading away into the distance. A huge column of thick, black smoke rose from the place where, until moments before, we had all seen the station. The smoke rose and spread in a leisurely fashion, masking a long stretch of shore. When they arrived at Port Baikal, Beckfar's group found total devastation. It turned out that when the second group attacked the Bolsheviks, the gunfire had set off some of the dynamite. The legionnaires went to pursue the fleeing Bolsheviks on foot through the railway tunnels, backed up by their armored train once the detonated tracks were fixed. For the next five days, the three units of legionnaires fought their way through the mountains and were almost at the mouth of the last tunnel when they heard another explosion. The Bolsheviks had set off the last of the dynamite and the railway was blocked. Without the full payload, the Red Army hadn't been able to totally destroy the tunnel and the legionnaires managed to clear the rails with three weeks of work. While they were delayed, the Red Guards had crossed the railway and dug in on the other shore of the lake. Scouts reported 60 troop trains parked outside a village called Babushkin. This is one of those moments where the, the, the format of the episode masks the time scale. Because just imagine this, that they're, they're in this like, they're in this like tense, like breakneck cross-country chase where they're trying to make it through these tunnels to get to the other side, racing against the clock and against the, the Bolsheviks, you know, trying to set up this explosion to collapse the tunnels in so that they'll be blocked off. And they're racing and racing and trying to get there. And they're fighting people off and trying to get there before they can do it. And then at the last, at the, you know, the end of it, the last second, the bomb goes off and it collapses the tunnel. But they destroyed part of the bomb, so they don't totally destroy the tunnel. They just collapse a bunch of the tunnel onto the tracks. And after this, like, after these, you know, after weeks of this tense chase where they're just, like, going at it every day, just going as fast as they can, they just have to stop. And they're like, well, three weeks of lifting rocks. It doesn't even, like, it's so, it's so hard to, it's so hard to understand that how traumatic and difficult this must have been. Also, because the weather in Russia Ain't no joke, bro. Yeah, this is all like they're freezing. They're like they're getting frostbite and losing fingers and shit. That shit is crazy. Getting whipped with like crazy winds, fully wind whipped. This, the wind won't let them go out and like play fantasy football with their buds. To hard life. Do you do you think fantasy football is actually playing football? I think it's. I think here's what I think fantasy football is. You go out to a football stadium and you dress in like football uniforms that are also like, you know, you have like little elf ears and like maybe like a little like tassel or something like that. And then you play like characters like Gershwim the Wise quarterback. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then you play football <laughs> at, in character. It's basically like a combination of LARPing and football. I mean, that sounds more interesting than the XFL. Although... Although the, the, the XFL from the, uh, is it the sixth day of the sixth? Yeah, the sixth day, that Arnold Schwarzenegger movie with, where, with the clones and they have the XFL in it. And like the XFL is like, it's like literal like fucking bare knuckle football where you, like people die. Like they tackle each other and like break each other's necks. Like it's a combination between like gladiatorial fighting and football. The soldiers who hadn't followed them armored some barges with timber, used steamboats to pull them across the lake and landed behind the Bolshevik forces. Another group went east across the open taiga in a flanking maneuver. Finally, an armored train would attack the Reds head-on, and the rest of the legionnaires advancing behind it. The Bolsheviks fought hard, and the armored train had to retreat several times. But Red Guards started fleeing by noon, and their whole front started to collapse when they realized the legion was able to land troops on their rear. Without time to get their train running, the Bolsheviks fled the frontal assault on foot right into the force set up behind them. The legionnaires killed several hundreds of them, and the rest fled into the hills. The Red Army in the east never recovered, and the legion now had a brand new stock of weapons and transportation. 
The battle at Lake Baikal meant that landlocked Czechoslovakia technically succeeded at every naval operation it attempted. By September 1st, the legionnaires had linked up with their comrades in Vladivostok. They now controlled transportation and communication in Siberia from the Ural Mountains to the Pacific Ocean, more than 5 million square miles, 10% of the Earth's surface, and they didn't want any of it. But the story isn't quite done yet. There's still the true fall of the great European empires, the establishment of independence of Czechoslovakia, and the epic and thrilling conclusion to this cross-country battle for freedom on next week's final episode of The Greatest War Story Never Told, Part 3. I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Spandrew Spice. This has been Deep Cuts. If you'd like to find me on the internet, you can do so at heydavebaker.com or at xdavebakerx on the socials. Um... Uh, please go pre-order my book, Mary Tyler Moorhawk, which is like Buckaroo, Buckaroo Banzai meets House of Leaves meets Johnny Quest. Uh, it's available for pre-order everywhere. Target, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Golden Apple Comics. Wherever you want to order books, you can pre-order it. Bed Bath & Beyond. <laughs> Bed Bath & Beyond, yeah. The comics section in Bed Bath & Beyond, yeah. Spandrew, where can people find you on the internet? What is that one popular grocery store in LA called Erwan yeah Erwan pre-order to Erwan uh, you can find me living in my quaint train car with my group of buds as we you know decorate with our you know delightful personalities and the way that they you know complement each other and uh, you know intersp- intersperse with each other and you know just you know we, we, we make each other better people at the end of the day we just make each other better you know um, and you also can't find me on social media because I don't use social media. But if you want to follow, if you want to get your hands, if you want to pay your respects, that's what I'm trying to really say here to the dear beloved Papa Price. You can get his book, Deadbolt AI Private Eye, by going to dapricerights.com. Or you can follow us on social media at Deep Cuts Pod on Instagram, Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook on Facebook, or Deep Cuts Podcast on Facebook. Uh, join the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group where we talk about the show and make memes. You can join our Discord server, bit.ly.com slash Discord, where we talk about the show, make memes, and play games and other stuff. You can uh, follow us on TikTok at Mystery Treehouse. You can go to our shop uh, go by going to deepcutspod.com and clicking on the shop, and you can get hats and shirts and other cool stuff. And you can uh, buy the brand new Deep Cuts branded battle train. This episode was written by special guest writer Louis Paji. If you'd be interested in writing an episode of Deep Cuts, email us at andrew at boygeniusmedia.com. Deep Cuts is a production by Boy Genius Media. If you'd like to find this show and others like it, please visit boygeniusmedia.com or deepcutspod.com. If you want to join in on post-episode discussions, please join the Deep Cuts podcast Facebook group. Finally, subscribe to our YouTube channel for additional video content. The incidental music for this episode was created by D. Catalano, whose music can be found at wekeepoddhours.bandcamp.com.